before I made my move. Glad you're here this morning. Good to see everyone here and appreciate your presence with us and for the big, the big, the big fish fry. Uh, that's it. I guess it's going to be big. There's going to be a lot of fish. Whether there'll be a lot of us there to eat it or not, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But uh, I know there's some folks back there taking care of that and cooking it and everything. And uh, looking forward to that. <coughs> Boy. Well, um, how many, see, don't look in your hymn book now. How many know where uh, that's, that hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, comes from? Where's that at? I'm asking, I'm only asking because I know. <laughs> See, if I didn't know, I wouldn't ask. It's one of those that I memorized from years and years ago. And this one that just, when I saw where that came from, it stuck with me. And, I, and I, so I'm not holding myself up. It's Deuteronomy 33 and verse 27. So if you want to look that up, then uh, you'll see where that, the theme of that song, that hymn uh, leaning on the everlasting arms came from. Okay. Um, also, let's see. We got. You know, we're starting into probably a busy season with uh, Thanksgiving coming up, and that's one reason why we're having the fish fry today, because we knew if we didn't get it done today, it wasn't going to happen. And um, on, on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We will have a communion that day, so you can be thinking ahead to that. And that's always, in my mind, a very important time as we make sure our, our hearts are well prepared for taking the elements that remind us of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. So be thinking about that. I think that's all the announcements I can think of that I... I, oh, well, I know we're going to Indiana for Christmas this year. Last year we didn't go, so this year we're going up for uh, a few days. And uh, I don't know exactly. What, I know that it's the 19th. Janet has off the 19th through the 26th, but I'm not sure if we'll stay through Christmas. I'm thinking we may come back Christmas Eve or something like that. I'm not sure. Anyway, that's sort of out there. Okay, um, James chapter 1, you know, we're, we're, seems like a labor, uh, a, a real intense work to try to get your way through <laughs> a book when you're studying a, a book of the Bible. And that's what I've been doing here. I just felt like I wanted to work our way through uh, a book that would hopefully be a means of encouragement to us knowing of, of the trials that we go through. And we know right here in this room this morning, those going through trial and we all go through them. We can't escape them, but it's to know what the purpose of the trial is and what the outcome will be and the attitude that we carry with us when we go through the trial. And this morning, we're led into a passage where James is discussing the source of the trial, the testing. And he wants us to know that it does not come from God. So what have we learned so far? 
well, quite a few things, and I can't name everything this morning, but some of the things we've learned and we've looked at is simply this, that trials are for the purpose of perfecting us, making us mature and complete or whole, entire, the King James uses the word entire, so that we will be prepared and ready to receive the crown of the life that he speaks about in verse 12. So there's an ultimate end in view. And I want to say something about the word crown, because crown speaks about a kingdom. I can't conceive or think or imagine of any other way in which you can talk about a crown without thinking about a kingdom. I mean, crowns are for people who are kings or queens. They wear them for a purpose. And yet I did come across at least one person commenting on this who thought that this crown of life was just some, you know, blessing that God has for us when we successfully endure a trial. I think it goes way beyond that. And one of the reasons I would think that was because of this word crown. A second reason we mentioned earlier was the fact that in front of that little word life is the word the. Now, you probably don't see it in your Bible, but in the Greek text, it's there. And if you do a study on that word and all the occurrences where the little article the occurs before that word, it speaks about the life that is yet to come. Jerry alluded to it in the verses that he read this morning. It's the life that is directly related to the coming age or the millennial kingdom, as he expressed it. It's the kingdom of the Messiah. It's the life that he promised to give during that age. And he used the word zoe to describe that life. It's not the word bios, where we get our familiar words for biology and biological and so on, speaking about the the physical life. It's not the word suke, speaking about the life of the soul or the inner life of, of a man. But it's the quality of life that is to be attained when we arrive at a certain goal, when we achieve or obtain that which God has laid out in his word for us, and those who aspire to it. And the process of getting there is going through trials, having your faith put to the test so that you will be strengthened, matured, made a whole, complete person, fit and prepared to live such a life under that king when he comes back to rule the earth. And he is coming back to rule the earth. Then another thing that we've learned is that going through a trial and successfully completing it has everything to do with our attitude and how we enter into it. James says, count it all joy. 
It's not an easy thing going through a trial. He didn't say it's going to be a pleasant thing. But the attitude should be one of joy as we go through the trial. A third thing we saw was if you're in doubt, if you are wavering, as he says, tossed about like the waves of the sea and the wind blowing upon the waves, he said, that's not the way to achieve the final outcome. You will not accomplish what God has for you if you go through the trial with doubts in your mind, wondering, what am I doing here? (laughs) In other words, the attitude should be, I know that I belong to my Savior. I have received him as my Lord and Savior. I belong to Jesus Christ. And his value and interest in me is so great that he wants to put me through such trials to prepare me and fit me for his coming rule over the earth. That's what's going on. And a doubtful person will never get to the end of the goal. They will never be brought to that full age of maturity whereby they're fit for that place. And then he also told us that this crown of life, he says, it's for those that he has promised to it because they love him. They love him. If you enter into a trial with the right attitude and your heart and soul is set on Christ because of your love for him. And the word here is the, our familiar word, agape, or agapao here. And it means that, that highest possible form of love that you can possibly have towards another person. Has no strings attached to it. It is a love that you have because you have determined and set your heart and mind upon loving that one. And we're supposed to have that same kind of love towards our spouse and marriage. And it's the same kind of love that we have for God. But in view of all of that, we come to verses 13 through 18 where James begins to tell us, well, yeah, you're going through all these trials or as the King James expresses them, temptations. You're being put to the test, but don't think for a second that God is the source of the temptation. Now he puts you through the test, but he's not the source of the temptation. So how can that be? What is he speaking of here? Well, he explains it in these few verses right here, especially in verses 13 through 15. He explains to us exactly what he's talking about. In verse 13, he says, Let no man, not a single individual, 
No matter how severe his trial is, no matter how severe the test is, can claim that God was the cause of his submitting to sin. No man. As a matter of fact, when he says, let no man say when he is tempted, we have a present tense imperative here. And that kind of hints to us that some of the people that James is writing to, these, amongst these 12 tribes that are scattered around the surrounding areas of Israel and the outer regions, were apparently on the verge of doing this very thing and making a claim that God's the one that's causing all this and laying the blame on him. And James is rebuking that whole idea through this present tense imperative to realize that these who are about on the verge of doing this, it hasn't been brought to you because of God as the source. If you look at verses 2 through 12, in the whole context there, we're looking at external, outward things that have been brought into our life that God is testing us with. Now, of course, they touch the inward man. And in verses 13 through 15, James is dealing with how we respond to that inwardly. So there's two different things. God does bring testings into our life. And they are of an outward nature. They're external. They are things that impose themselves upon us. And we talked about that word fall several times. When you fall into temptations and you're surrounded by it you're you're overwhelmed by it but here he's talking about a man when he is tempted he says don't say you're tempted of god for god cannot be tempted it's not a part of his nature it does not bode to speak does not bode well to speak of one who has no such capacity within him at all. God is a God who is totally righteous. He has no capacity within himself to tempt somebody to do evil or to commit sin. It isn't, it's totally contrary to who he is in his nature. And so he tempts no man. But he tells us in verse 14... The whole process, here it is. He just kind of lays it out. This is the way it happens, folks. Every man is tempted, he says, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So how does it happen? It happens from within. It happens from the inward part of man. It has its beginning point there. This is where it all gets stirred up. And there's some interesting things here about some of these words here. Every man, when he is tempted, he says he is drawn away or dragged away. (laughs) He is pulled into a, 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 a position 
or he is pulled into a, a um, situation. Drawn away. Look, look just a moment back to Acts chapter 20. This whole idea of being drawn away tells us something about the intensity of the desire inside the person that turns them away to whatever this, this object of their desire is. If you look in Acts chapter 20, it's it's not the same context here, but a similar situation in that you remember that Paul here at this situation is on his final journey going back to Jerusalem. He and he's made his way to Ephesus and he is uh, meeting with the elders of the church. And he's giving them some final words because he knows he won't see them anymore. And he says in verse 29, he says, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. The whole idea, drawing them away. How do they do that? How are men drawn away? Well, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2. So let's go back, turn to the right, to 2 Peter that is to the right from James, Second Peter, chapter two. Now, James uses some really strong language here in this whole chapter, and he's talking. If you, if you look at verse 1, you'll find that he's talking about false prophets, false teachers, and so on. Those who subvert within the church. Those who are undermining the truth of God's word. And if you come down to verse 14 of 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 14. He talks about what kinds of people they are. And he says, having eyes full of adultery. And that cannot seize from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Now, that word beguiling in the King James is the same word we have back here for the word enticed in verse 14. Beguiling them. Now, what is that? Well, let's look down again at verse 18. Talking about these same people, he says, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh. And that word allure is the same word again. 
So it's, it's the whole, these are, and by the way, it's interesting that we have opportunity to have some fish today because this word is a word that's related to fishing. It has the idea of bait, baiting someone, baiting a fish. It was a fishing term. So you have this whole idea then of when you're fishing, you know, you're trying to draw away the fish to pay attention to your lure. And then the other idea that's involved here is to actually get the fish to bite on the bait, to entice them, to lure them. Now, later on, this same word began to be used of harlots and the same thing that they do in their allurements and enticing and getting someone to actually take the bait, to bite on it. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, once the hook is set, what do you do? What's a fisherman supposed to do when you feel the fish biting on the hook? Right? You kind of pull the pole so you can set the hook in the fish's mouth so he can't get away. Now, that's a pretty graphic picture. Apparently, uh, I would say, I can't remember how many fish Ron said he and his, uh, his cousin's husband, how many they caught the other day and what we're going to be eating here in a little bit. But think of how many times those fish gave in and succumbed to the bait and the pole was jerked, the hook was set, and, of course, what happened? The fun began. The thrill that was theirs as they began to reel that fish in and feel the tug on the there of that fish trying to get off. I mean, it's so graphic and full. Sin, he says... They've, they're drawn away of their own lust and enticed. They take the bait. In verse 15, then he says, when lust hath conceived. When lust hath conceived. This is an interesting expression also. Of course, the way it's worded here in the King James, it has to do with the idea of birth, conception. It has to do with the birth process. But as a matter of fact, if you look back, look back at Luke chapter 1. Since we're nearing the Christmas holidays here, we'll just take a quick look at Luke chapter 1. So turn back left there. And if you'll look down at verse, now there are several other verses you could look at where the word is translated the same way. We're just going to look at one this morning. But look at verse verse 24, Luke chapter 1 and verse 24. And you'll see there that it says, And after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived. Now that's the same word that we have back here, conceived, in James 1.15. However, turn over to Mark chapter 14. So you've got to go back to the left a little farther, just a couple pages. <clears throat> Mark chapter 14 
And if you look at, excuse me, at verse 48. Mark chapter 14, verse 48. Now, of course, here we're at the, the final scenes of the Lord Jesus Christ being taken to crucifixion. We're going to go to the cross. And in verse 48, it says here, Jesus answered and said unto them, Are ye come out uh, as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? That word, that little phrase, to take me, is the same word conceive. They just translated it to take me. But if you go back now, go back to James chapter 1, verse 15. And if you look at verse 15, when he says, Then when lust hath conceived, or when lust has taken me. So you catch the full picture here. You get the idea of what has happened when you've given in. It's got you. Did I say that right grammatically? It has got you. You're on, in other words, let me just say it this way. You're on the hook. It's been set. You have been taken. It has been conceived in you. At the point you bite, you've sinned. That's what James is telling us. It bringeth forth sin. It gives birth to sin. It is talking here about the travailing process that a woman goes through in giving birth to a child. It brings forth sin. And then sin, when it is finished, when it is brought to its completion, when it's all over with, then he says it brings forth death. Not a pretty picture. But if you look at this passage in contrast to what the proper positive intention of a trial was all about, which we saw in verses 2 through 12, and the outcome there was the life. Now you see the complementary contrast to what happens if we fail the test. If we give in. You see, here you are, picture... One going through a test. They have the proper attitude. They have the understanding of what the test is about. They know that God has put them through, as it were, we said, the ringer. To try their faith. And they know on the inside, on, on, on the end of this, is a positive outcome. Because they have endured the outward circumstances of the trial. It's when you turn to the inward part of man and this inner part of man with his lust, his desire, gives in to that which is out there, this bait, as it were. That's when the real problem begins. And that's when sin takes place. Now, there are many passages we could turn to, and especially if we would turn back to Romans chapter 6, about not 
submitting ourselves or subjecting ourselves as slaves to sin. We're not slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. We are to live in accord with the principles that <clears throat> James has laid out for us in verses 2 through 12. Or thir- yeah, two, two, 2 through 12. Verses 13 through 15 are to remind us that you can't lay any blame on God for failure. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that God never puts anything in our path, but what we have a way to escape it. We have a way to endure it. We can get through it. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that we have a high priest in heaven that we can run to at a moment's notice when we are going through the trial, when we are being tested, to get help, to get aid. We'll find grace, he says, mercy at the throne of grace. And I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I've used that passage so many times. And, and, and <laughs> I hate to talk like this, but I, I was, I'm amazed that God fulfills his word. He does exactly what he says he will do. And I, the interesting thing that we need to pay attention to is if you study 1 Corinthians 10, well, the, the end of 1 Corinthians 9, along with 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews chapter 3, and 4, James chapter 1 with the crown of life, you understand that the context of all of these has to do with a person, a Christian, a believer who is a seeker of that life in the age to come. So it's not this passive thing where, well, I've received Christ as my Savior, I know I'm going to heaven, everything's fine, I'm okay. I can just sit back and coast through life and I'm going to be all right. And that's a a false attitude and a false idea. You're going to miss out on the purpose for the trials and the tests. As a matter of fact, he tells you in verse 16, do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not, as the word more literally probably would say, is do not go astray. And you know, that word there is used of a ship going off course. Don't get off course here and miss the point of the trial. Don't get off course and blame God for your own sin. Because that comes from within you. And didn't Jesus tell us himself? It's not that on the outside that defiles a man. He said, it's that which comes from the inside. And boy, did he ever name some things to tell us the kinds of things that defile us. And if we give in to those things, we've only hurt ourselves. As a matter of fact, as a further reminder of God's goodness in all of this, he tells us in verse 17, every good gift or every good gift that is being given and every perfect gift that we get is from heaven. 
Why would we expect that something evil would come out of heaven if it came from God? He says, it comes down from the father of the, of the lights. Interesting expression, isn't it? Speaking about the stars and the planets and the suns and what have you that's in heaven. The father of the lights. With whom, he says, is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He is as consistent as you can imagine him to be. He doesn't change to tempt us to do evil after having, think about this now. Well, let let me go on and read verse 18. Of his own will begat he us. Now, that word begat is the same word bringing forth down here in verse 15. In the same way, then, that lust, when it's conceived, gives birth to or brings forth sin, he's saying of his own will, of God's will, he brought us forth, how? With the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, this is Think back again to what we've just talked about in the past weeks about this context and the setting of James's letter. It was a very early letter written maybe just within a few months to maybe a year or two after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that in mind, think back to the gospel that Jesus preached to his disciples And not just to his disciples, but to to everyone. (laughs) What was his whole ministry about? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Preaching the word of the kingdom, as Matthew 13 tells us. This word of truth that Jesus Christ preached was the very thing through which he birthed us. And it was by his own will, not ours. And John 1.12 speaks to that, if you want to go look at that a little bit later. So what I'm trying to say here then is that in the midst of all of this, he brought us forth with a good, beneficent purpose in mind with an end in view, that of receiving the crown of the life. Now, that's just a, a, an, a, an expression to talk about the, the, the whole comprehensive idea of the life that God wants us to know and enjoy because of his goodness to us, and which we will have and enjoy in his kingdom. But we have to be prepared. We have to be fitted for this, this kingdom through these tests, through the proper, successful endurance of the tests that are before us. Why, he says, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
I don't know for sure if this is exactly where James, I know what he's saying, but I don't know if he's saying that you people that I'm writing to, you're the ones who are the kind of first fruits of his creatures. You are the first fruits of the harvest, as it were. Well, if you keep in mind again how early this letter was written and how near it was to the preaching of the gospel by Jesus and by his apostles and what took place during the book of Acts and the persecution that occurred there and the scattering of these these disciples in Acts chapter 8 and so on. It could very well be that he is speaking to them to tell them that you're kind of like the first fruits of the harvest. You make it through these trials. You and you get through these. And by the way, the, I forgot to mention too, the implications here and in this passage was that some of these here were right on the verge of giving in. Doesn't say they've actually done these things, but they were on the verge of giving in and blaming God for it, for their sin. But he said, rather, you would be treated as first fruits, which, by the way, if you have a first fruits, then you have a guarantee or an assurance that there's an even bigger harvest that's yet to come. So when you go out to take a harvest off of the mango tree or if you're going out to take a harvest out of the cornfield or the vineyard or whatever it is that you're reaping, you know that some of the fruit becomes ripe ahead of the rest of it. And so you go out and you you pick a few. You take a little bit. But then later on, the fruit ripens up so fast that there's a huge harvest. And you've got to go out and just gather up a huge harvest all at one time. You can't wait. Well, when Jesus said to the disciples, the fields are already white unto harvest, he was talking about fields that were fully ripened and ready to be reaped. And I think here that he was telling us these who were successful in getting through the trials of enduring that which they were going through in view of the fact that they knew that they would receive the crown of the life was an an encouragement to us to endure, to keep on going on. To live in view of that which is yet to come. Because there's so much more. So much more to life than just trying to live for today. So much more than trying to run from the trial 
and to escape it so that we won't feel the pain. Or running from the test. Now, and of course there's the the contrast here. It's one thing to run from the test and escape it. But it's another thing altogether, looking at the context of verses 13 to 15, to run from the temptation to do the evil. That is another thing altogether. One is we're running from the externals as the trials in verses 2 through 12 speak of. But to run from the internal, that's a good thing. We're to flee that. We're to escape that and not let us be drawn in. That's why we're supposed to walk Paul says, circumspectly, walk with wisdom, walk wisely. As a matter of fact, that's why he says, if we lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So that we have discernment, so that we can finish the test and pass with flying colors. And that's what we all want to do. That's what we need to do in order to be a success. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we thank you that there is a God in heaven who is full of wisdom and knowledge and power and understanding and purpose. And that we are here today because there is a purpose for us. And you have a plan set out by which we might achieve that purpose. Lord, I pray that as we look to your word, as we trust in it and believe it and have faith and confidence in what you have recorded for us, that if we will obey, then we will be indeed the recipients of these promises. That there is coming a day when we will enjoy a life that is far superior to this one, far beyond what we can imagine. And I pray that you will give us the grace to do that today. I pray that we as a body, all connected by ligaments and muscle and bone, members one of another, would serve to be an encouragement to one another and to lift each other up, and to help each other along the way, so that we can all hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord, and to receive that rich, bountiful welcome into your kingdom that you promise to those who obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.